Good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. For our longtime listeners, you know that at Jew in the City, we're all about breaking down stereotypes about Orthodox Jews. We show the positive and the meaningful side of Orthodox Judaism. Um, there's so much beauty to show um, in the Torah, in terms of Torah wisdom. There's so many positive things um, to show about observant life. And we spend so much time at Jew in the City uh, really yeah, you know, explaining how mitzvos that might seem are actually relevant and meaningful in the world today. For instance, we recently had on a college teacher, Rebbet Senyoetzet Halacha, Lisa Septimus, to talk about how there is so much that Jewish law has to say in terms of consent. And these are topics that we're very much thinking about in terms of, you know, the Me Too movement right now. So we usually try to show the positive, and there's plenty of positive to highlight. But then, sort of in order to show um, how an orthodox life could work in modern times um, in a positive way, in a kind way, in a thinking way, which is really ultimately what we're trying to do, we have to also grapple with some difficulties. We have to grapple with sections of the Torah that are hard to read in modern times and don't exactly work with our modern mores. And then we also have to grapple with parts of Jewish law that are hard to understand or hard to kind of come to terms with, um, especially if they cause pain to people when really the essence of being a Torah Jew is to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, don't uh, hurt others uh, or, you know, do to others what you wouldn't want done to you. So these are some of the things that uh, we also try to understand. And um, unfortunately, or I mean, maybe we can also say fortunately, whenever we we don't deal with things well um, in our sources or, you know, vis-a-vis other people, um, the media is always very quick to call us out on it. Um, and a, a big example of this particular situation is the Aguna crisis. Um, and so a few years ago, I started seeing a lot of Aguna stories in the news. Um, first, there was the story of, um, as I think the Daily News dubbed him the cattle prod rabbi, um, the prod father, um, because they always have to have awful titles. Um, and so there was this rabbi that was torturing recalcitrant husbands in order to um, have them give the get, um, which is uh, illegal and immoral and, you know, very problematic. And in other times there was, uh, we can talk with our guests more about this, a, a sort of a system set up to uh, get the husband to give the get, but it really doesn't work in our modern times. Um, and then there were story after story of, you know, women that couldn't get out of marriages. And um, not only did it make us look bad, like it, it was was bad. It is bad. And um, being the problem solver that I tried to be, um, I was curious about, well, what can we do? What is there to do? And I had heard about the halachic prenup before. Um, and the truth is that when my husband and I got married 18 years ago, um, we sort of were not, we didn't come through the modern Orthodox world in the most standard way. My husband was raised Lubavitch. Um, I'm a Balchuva, and I was in a bunch of different seminaries along the way. Um, so we didn't have a modern Orthodox Masada or Kedushin marry us, and we didn't sign the halachic prenup. And um, when I spoke to my Rav, one, one of the uh, Rebbeim that I'm close with is a Rosh Hashiva at YU, uh, Rabbi Daniel Feldman. And I was just curious because I knew he's involved with uh, the halachic prenup through an organization called ORA, um, Organization for the Resolution of uh, Agunot. Um, and I said, by the way, how effective is the halachic prenup anyway? Um, and I was expecting him to say 25% effective, 30% effective, maybe even 50% if I was lucky. And he said, oh, it's actually 100% effective. And I said, wait, what? He said, when duly signed and executed um, in over 20 years, the halachic prenup has been 100% effective. And I was like, 
shut the front door. Like, what the heck? Why Why isn't this statistic everywhere? Why aren't we talking about this everywhere? Why hasn't everyone signed off on this? Um, and so I began to do legwork with some Rebetzins and uh, partners that we get you in the city have in the yeshivish, chasidish, Lubavitch world where the halachic prenup is less popularized and less known about. Um, and we actually published a list um, a few years ago of some rabbis that we got. We sort of pressured them <laughs> into saying yes. Um, and one of our big, you know, sort of partners and helpers and guides uh, in this process um, is a rabbi named Rabbi Jeremy Stone Stern. I can speak English. Um, who's with us today? Um, he's the director of Aura. Um, and he just put a headline on Facebook that caught my attention, and I said, I must bring you on my show, uh, Jeremy. Welcome to Jew in the City Speaks. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, um, you know, I really appreciate um, I've sent I've sent you so many questions over the years to try to clarify all the different parts about the halachic prenup and how it works. And uh, you've just given me so much time. And I really tried to use, you know, the resources that you and your staff has given to educate people and then educate rebbitzins and circles. And even right now. So you put this um headline on uh, Times of Israel article, um, which prompted me to have you come on the show, um, which said we've solved the Aguna crisis, which is incredible. Um, and the article after that is incredible. Um, and I'm just sending out to lots of people. Before we get to, you know, where things are today, thank God, can you run us through kind of the details of how the halachic prenup works in case we have any people listening today that don't understand what it is, how it came about, why it came about? Um, can you give us a background on that? Sure. Uh, thank you. So the the Agunat problem as, as we have it nowadays, specifically the situation of recalcitrance, where a husband is refusing to issue a get to his wife. And we talk about Agunot rather than Agunim. Uh, it can happen the other way that a wife can refuse to receive a get from her husband. But from what we've seen, literally 99% of situations are where the husband refuses to issue the get rather than the wife refuses to receive the get. So for simplicity's sake, let's talk about the 99% of cases, uh, but it's not to diminish the fact that men can be victims of this issue as well. Um, so in talking about this issue, I don't believe that this is a problem with halacha. This is a problem with our society. Halacha has solutions to resolve the aguna problem. The issue is, and specifically outside of Israel, is that when a man refuses to issue his wife a get, uh, and the marriage is irrecon irrecon irreconcilable, that is a violation of halacha, it's unethical, it's a chilol Hashem, and halachically the man is, is required to give his wife a get. So what happens in the United States when someone breaks the law, doesn't do what they're required to do, right? They Whether they, they speed or if they murder or if they steal, what happens? We have a civil enforcement system. We have a justice system, right? Where if you could either be penalized or you can go to jail or be put in solitary confinement if you break the law, right? In, in terms of civil law. In halacha, that should happen as well. A man who refuses to give his wife a get and is holding her as an aguna, halachically he should be put in jail. And in Israel, that's what they do. Uh, once they demonstrate that the husband is is recalcitrant, they'll put him in jail. But outside of Israel, and especially in the United States, where we, we have a separation between church and state, the civil courts are not going to enforce halacha. So these men are all halachically required to give, give their wives a get. Uh, if we could, we'd put them in jail, right? We'd put them in solitary confinement, which they'll do in some cases in Israel as well. But we can't do that. So we lack enforcement. We lack enforcement of our own laws. And that's why these guys can just get away with it. What the halachic prenup does 
it seeks to, re to remedy that problem. And the way it does that, it creates an enforcement mechanism so that halacha can be enforced. It empowers the Beitin, and specifically the Beitin of America, to uh, have enforcement power that its ruling is enforced by United States civil courts. And it creates a financial mechanism as well to induce the issuance of a get, of a get to the tune of $150 a day for every day that the husband is recalcitrant. Uh, and so it, that's what it does. It addresses that problem of the Vatan not having enforcing power by giving them enforcing power, giving real teeth of a financial disincentive to ward off debt refusal. Okay, so now we're going to go through some of the typical questions that you guys get every day, but we want to flush sure. out for our listeners. Um, so why is this not a get ma'usa? Why is this not a forced get? You're you're penalizing the husband for not, um, you know, giving the get. So doesn't that become a forced get? Great question. Uh, so the halachic prenup is is such an eloquent solution uh, to this issue, or an elegant solution, as I meant to say, uh, to the, to this problem. In that it addresses the civil legal problems and the halachic problems. If we were to penalize a husband to issue a fine against him for his recalcitrance, that might be considered a get meuse, right? A, a illicitly coerced get. And that, and that get may not be kosher, and that doesn't really help for the wife to get a get that doesn't actually function to free her from, from this dead marriage. So it's not structured as a penalty, rather it's structured as spousal support, halachic spousal support, separate and beyond from civil, uh, you know, civilly issued spousal support. So what it does is it says a husband is halakhically required to support his wife, that the Torah says. The Torah says that a man has to provide his wife, wife with her basic necessities, food, clothing, and shelter over the duration of their marriage. When they're living together in the same house, she has shelter and they have a shared credit card account so she you know, can buy clothes and they have dinner together every night so she has food. But now that they're separated, they're no longer living under the same roof. They no longer uh, have joint, a joint bank account or credit card account. He is still halakhically required to provide her with food, clothing and shelter over the duration of, the, of their halakhic marriage until he gives her a get. So this simply enforces that obligation that he already had from the inception of their marriage. Uh, so it's not creating a penalty on his refusal to give a get, but simply enforcing his spousal support obligations towards her. It essentially creates a trade-off for him. It says, you, sir, are refusing to give your wife a get. That means you're insisting on staying in the marriage. Well, if you're going to insist on staying in this marriage, that comes with certain responsibilities. And those responsibilities are to the tune of $150 per day, an average of, that's the average amount that's used, $55,000 a year, in order to provide her with her food, clothing, and shelter. So that's why it's not a penalty, it's not a gedma'usa, it's mizonos, it's a spousal support uh, obligation. Excellent. Now, this is based on a, uh, a historical document, um, right. which I would love for you to talk about. And also, if you could tell us who drafted the halachic prenup and when. Sure. So there is a, a historical precedent for the halachic prenup from a sefer called the Nachalas Shiva, uh, which, which was written a few hundred years ago, 200, 300 years ago. Um, and that, that was a sefer that was a compendium of all sorts of different halachic documents. And one of those halachic documents is something that they call the Tnai Machronim, which talks about the husband ensuring that the wife's spousal support is provided for even if they're separated. The same idea that we were that I was just describing. Uh, so that's a halachic precedent for it. And the Nachalas Shiva even says that there's a precedent for that document from a few hundred years ago from Takanas Shum, which is from a few hundred years before that. 
Um, so, uh, so there really is a halachic historical precedent to it. The halachic prenup as we have it today by the Bezdin of America was drafted by Rav Mordechai Willig, who's a Skanav Bezdin of the Bezdin of America. Uh, and when he drafted, and it was really drafted in 91, 92, uh, around, around then, um, he, uh, he ensured that, uh, that posts came from across the spectrum. Uh, endorse the halachic prenup, that we want to make sure that the get which is induced through this document is going to be halachically accepted across the Orthodox world. So Ravavadi Yosef uh, endorsed the halachic prenup. They have his askama, signed askama. Rav Zamanichem Goldberg, who's a major dayan and, and posig in Israel, um, signed on to the, the halachic prenup. Um, Rav Gedai Dov Schwartz, who's the Av Bezin of the Bezin of America, he is signed on to the halachic prenup. Um, Rav, uh, Rav Asher Weiss, who's also a major postache and died in Eretz Yisrael today, uh, he signed on to the Lachik prenup. Uh, as you know, Allison, and you've been involved in this in getting additional uh, postgame to endorse it, including Rav, uh, Rav Shmuel First, who's the head of the Goda Bezdin in Chicago. He's endorsed it. Rav uh, David Cohen has endorsed the, the Halachic prenup. Um, and there are many postgame who won't come out, come out publicly, but I've spoken with, who've said they see no Halachic problem with it. They even think that, that it's a good idea. Yeah, I'm going back to the list now. Um, I also called Rev Noda Greenblatt, who said, yeah, of course right. I use it. it. It's great. It's great to use. Um, some of our Rebbitsons were in touch with Rev Yitzchak Berkovitz, who said it's good. Um, Rav Yechiel Per has a different version of one, a little more simple, but he's been using it in his uh, yeshiva in um, Far Rockaway for three decades. Um, I think actually he had he had uh, uh, sent a tshuva sort of Moshe Feinstein, which is in Igros Moshe, about halachic prenups. And Rav Moshe was not bothered by the concept of having a halachic prenup. The, the mechanism that he was talking about there was uh, not exactly the mechanism of the Bezdin of America, but at least in principle, Rav Moshe was not opposed to, uh, to halachic prenups. Okay, so um, so there's definitely, and I'll tell you, there's actually um, a Hasidish Dayan that I spoke to who first told me I could tell anyone um, that he said it's totally fine. Um, and then... When I put it in writing, he called me up and he's like, oh, not in writings. I'm not sure if radio is okay, but I'm, I'm going to be a little wiser this time and not <laughs> put it in, in this level of public. But um, I did speak to a, a known Hasidish Dayan and Posek um, that is very heavily relied on in the Haredi world. Um, and he told me there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Um, but just before we get to how you've ended the Aguna crisis, because we have to keep people listening. Um, <laughs> Just a, a couple more points that people may be wondering. And honestly, even when I presented your article to some of these Rebbitsons, they started putting it into their, you know, uh, WhatsApp groups and they were getting kind of peppered with more questions. So, um, what people probably also are going to ask uh, is what about reciprocity? How do we protect the woman, even though it's only 1% of cases? Um, yeah. What do we do to make sure that the woman plays ball and, you know, just this guy is signing and she's not signing? So how, how do we even the playing field? Great question. Uh, upon request from the Bezin of America, they'll they'll issue the they'll give you the reciprocal version of the halachic prenup, which is the version that we regularly used at Ora, and uh, we have it on our website getora.org. Um, so it's a reciprocal version, and in addition to the, the standard version, which creates an obligation on the husband to issue the get, it also creates uh, an equal obligation on the wife to receive the get uh, from the husband. Um, so it's a slightly different halachic mechanism. There's not re really the same level of get ma'use uh, by a wife uh, receiving the get as there is for a husband to issue the get. So the halachic concerns are diminished uh, significantly. Um, but I, I find that everyone likes the reciprocal version be better. 
because on the left, they see it as, you know, more egalitarian and more equal and it's reciprocal and it's mutual obligations. On the right, they like it better as well because uh, you see, it's not only men who can be bad, but, and it's not a feminist, uh, you know, document and it's not against, you know, men, but it's it's supporting uh, men as well. So um, I'm a big fan of the reciprocal version. And, uh, and again, it's available on our website, getora.org, G-E-T-O-R-A.org. Um, okay, I'm just thinking of a couple last questions because I'm just going through all the stuff that I asked you when we were going through this. Uh, when signed and duly executed, it has been uh, effective in um, court of law and it has been tested. It has gone up against uh, court. So could you tell us a little bit about um, sort of how it has shown its power in, in court? There's a well-known case, the Light case from 2012, uh, uh, Rachel Light versus uh, Evan Light, available. You can search it on the internet. Um, in which the halachic prenup was challenged in civil court by a former recalcitrant husband, um, and a uh, judge wrote a decision enforcing the uh, the halachic prenup. Um, that case was one of the first times. There have been a few other cases where it's been brought up in court. That was the first time where there was a whole trial specifically on the uh, the halachic prenup and its enforceability. Um, and that case really was a precedent-setting case uh, to demonstrate that the halachic prenup is not unconstitutional, that it is civilly enforceable, um, and that the civil courts will enforce it. Since then, we've seen several situations where the prenup has been brought up by the wife once the husband started posturing or stating that he was going to refuse to issue the get, and especially since the Light case uh, from 2012, uh, no recalcitrant husband has been dumb enough uh, to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a losing legal ba battle just to chant that you know just to, to challenge the enforceability of the halachic prenup when he's quite certain and his attorney is quite certain that it's that it's uh, that the challenge is not going to work. Uh, so what we find now is not that it's litigated because it's a done deal. The halachic prenup has been drafted by teams of attorneys and and refined over the years in terms of its enforceability in keeping up with uh, latest the latest laws and things like that in various states. Um, and it, it's 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 really it's airtight. It's it's an extremely well written, civilly enforceable document. What we find instead, rather than it being litigated, once it's brought to the attorney of the uh, the husband, once it's brought to the, to the attention of the husband's attorney, the husband's attorney instructs his client, "Buddy, it's over. Like you, you just can't challenge this. This this document is going to be enforceable. Not only are you going to have to give the get, but you're also going to have to pay her money. Uh, so it's, you're just going to lose. Um, so it's it's really worked." Um, and I guess the last two things before we get to how we've eradicated uh, the uh, Aguna um, crisis, um, we should note just because, I mean, there's a lot of wonderful news to report, but we should note that in a case of a missing husband, um, that's sort of a different halacha category. So it would not, um, unfortunately, help with that. But that's a tragedy in its own sense. So if you could just speak a little bit to that issue that um, in the vast majority of cases, and certainly anything acrimonious, um, it, it is working. But just there is this one thing that is, is a tragic situation for any human being undergoing this. Right. And I, I try to be careful to say that whenever I say that the husband, that the halakhic prenup has been 100% effective, I say it has been 100% effective in cases of recalcitrance. 
Um, not in the extremely rare, extremely, extremely rare situation of a missing husband, especially in 2018. It's hard for people to go missing with all of the technology and everything that Google knows about you. And apparently Facebook knows about you and Facebook's advertisers know about you and everything else. Uh, it's really hard for people to go totally missing. So correct, it's it's not going to work in a situation where you can't even uh, pursue any sort of legal, legal you know, uh, uh, yeah, process. Um, it's not going to work in a situation where the husband is comatose. Um, again, like that that's a uh, a different type of aguna situation. It's geared specifically to deal with the situations of recalcitrance, not the extremely rare situations of a missing husband or a husband who lacks uh, mental capacity. Um, and I guess just the second to last thing that I want to ask you is um, what if um, what if I didn't sign the halachic prenup when I got married for the person listening? Is there anything for me to do now? Sure, the halachic postnup. Um, so rather than being a prenuptial agreement that you signed before you got married, you can sign the postnuptial agreement uh, after your halachic marriage. Um, and so that's also available on our website. Uh, if you just tuned in now, getora.org, G-E-T-O-R-A dot O-R-G. We have the halachic postnup there. And uh, and a cu couples can sign it even if they're already married. We've had postnup signings, uh, and Allison, you helped us organize one. Um, in uh, it, was it in Crown Heights, right? It was in Crown um, Heights, yeah. And I signed it. I signed a halachic postnup. I think we were married for sixteen or seventeen years. Posted the picture on social media and got a ton of people writing in to ask how they could organize postnup parties. So, awesome, awesome. Yeah. So that's halachic postnup. Um, and then I guess just the last question, which I think will um, will lead into finally your article without any further ado. Um, what about the person that says $150 a day? Huh, that won't work. You know, um, that that's not a very big incentive. A rich person right. could just pay that money and it wouldn't be a big deal. Yeah, so that's, that's a good question. And that's uh, kind of a, a pot shot that people try to take uh, at the, the halachic prenup. Um, what, what we've seen is that and I, I think this is this is obvious for anyone who who follows divorce cases that what animates contentious divorce is the desire to prove the other person wrong. People will fight over nickels and dimes in a divorce case. They will pay their attorney more money than they stand to gain from the other party just to prove the other person wrong. What the halachic prenup does, it makes an absolute statement that the recalcitrant party, specifically the husband, uh, is uh, is wrong, and he's so wrong that he that he has to admit it to his wife and to his whole community and anyone else, right? And he's so wrong that he further has to be an open-ended ATM to her, paying her fifty-five thousand uh, dollars a year. Um, in the cases that we see of recalcitrance. We're dealing with cases now where they've been separated for a few weeks or a few months, but generally a few years. The cases that we see, they've been separated for five years, 10 years, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know no one in this world who doesn't care about hundreds of thousands of dollars and certainly would not want to give hundreds of thousands of dollars to the one person in the world that they hate the most, that they're trying to demonstrate their spite towards them by being an open-ended ATM. That's that's number one. Number two is that what's great about the halachic prenup is that it gets the couple in the doors of the baton of the rabbinical court from, and you'll excuse the the pun, from the get-go, right, from the very beginning in the divorce in the divorce process, which is critical because when 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 a, a wife only asks for the for her get 
two, three, four years after separation, after their civil divorce, after the husband didn't get 100% of the things that he wants in a divorce settlement or in a trial, right? Then he's entrenched in his recalcitrance and he feels that he has nothing to lose by withholding the get to try and use it as leverage for extortion. But early on in the process, uh, especially if they're they're going in front, in front of a judge and they want to look good in front of the judge, they want to show that they're not the recalcitrant party, they're the good guy or the good woman or whatever it is. And so for the husband, from the very beginning, the wife can initiate the process in the Baitin, and the Baitin can deem him in contempt of Baitin and recalcitrant, and he's already paying her money due to the fact that he's such a bad, a bad guy. It, it will ruin his reputation in the eyes of his friends and family members, and certainly in the eyes of the judge. So I think even the timing and the way that the halakhic prenup gets enforced uh, is another element for, for how, how successful it, it, it has been. And finally, if a couple's very, very wealthy when signing it or when signing the halakhic postnup, the 150 per day is an estimate for standard of living to cover food, clothing, and shelter after taxes for essentially modern Orthodox Jews in the United States. It's an estimate of $55,000 a year. That's how much it's going to cost to have a, uh, an apartment, a one-bedroom apartment for the wife, uh, you know, in uh, in Riverdale or in Queens or, you know, wherever it is, right? Um, and uh, But if a couple's very wealthy, one signing the halachic prenup or postnup, uh, they can they can increase that that amount. They can make it more than $150 per day as long as it is within their standard of living when they're signing it. Because again, if it's too high, it's going to be, as we, what we discussed before, it's going to be considered a penalty, halachic penalty, which is halachically problematic. But if it's within their standard of living, it's it's fine to make the amount higher. I recommend they do it in consultation with a, with a knowledgeable rav who understands these issues. All right, we've got about three minutes to go, and I'd like okay. you to talk about your crowdfunding campaign, which ends today. And yes. I also want you to uh, tell us why has the Aguna crisis been eradicated? Awesome, thank you. So I wrote an article four years ago in the Times of Israel, and the article was, we can end the Aguna crisis, right? It's, we can end, right? Now, the article that I wrote uh, two days ago was, we've solved the Aguna crisis. Not we can, but we've actually solved it. And the difference between four years ago and now is four years ago, we were talking theory. Theoretically, with all the reasons that we just gave about why the halacha prenup is so effective, we knew that it was going to work really, really, really well. But now we're seeing the real change. Now we're looking at our cases and the number of modern Orthodox cases that we have at Ora. We work on 70, 75 active Aguna cases at any given time and, uh, and, and receive hundreds of phone calls every year from people looking for assistance in the GET process. The numbers of modern Orthodox cases has diminished rapidly in the past year or two or three. Uh, and it's got to be because of the halachic prenup. We have no cases uh, of, of couples who were recently married you know, within the past few years by modern Orthodox rabbis. Um, whereas, tragically, we still have lots and lots and lots of cases and, are, and continue getting new cases from other, other segments of the Jewish community, Orthodox and non-Orthodox, um, who have not adopted and standardized the use of the halachic prenup. Uh, so we've solved, what we're seeing now is not just the halachic prenup can work, but it is working. We're solving it in the modern Orthodox world. It's time for us to, number one, keep that up. Right? We, we educate high school students and college students every year. There are new high school seniors every year. Right, There's a new crop of students that we need to, need to educate, more communities that we need to reach out to, and be able to expand um, and, uh, and reach additional, additional communities and demonstrate the effectiveness of the halachic prenup. That's why we've launched this crowdfunding campaign. Um, you can go to our Facebook group, 
uh, or to our website, getora.org, uh, G-E-T-O-R-A dot O-R-G, and see the link to uh, the crowdfunding campaign or a Facebook group. Uh, just Google Ora. I'm sorry, just search on Facebook Ora Agunot. You'll find it there. Um, and we're, we're, we've put together a $60,000 campaign to raise funds to support su support these Agunot prevention initiatives, our educational campaigns, so that we can put ourselves out of business because that's really our goal. This campaign, we have uh, a matching uh, funds of $30,000. So every dollar will go twice as far. You donate $100, it'll count as $200 uh, towards us eliminating the Agunot crisis going forward. Thank you so much, Jeremy. When you go out of business, it helps us at Jew in the City and Project Makom to have a better chance of going out of business as well. And that's what we're hoping to do, too. So we wish you much Hatzlacha on Thank you so all much. of your work. Um, I, I like to say that, that once we resolve the Algona crisis, I'm going to tackle the Shidduch crisis. So. All right. <laughs> Both ends. Um, all right. Thank you so much. Much Hatzlacha. Um, and thank you for joining us. You can catch us same time, same place next week. Bye-bye.